<clears throat> so we are now in the second half of the retreat. And uh, two more, two f- more full days to go for us. And I just want to read the quote again, which I read yesterday evening from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is a, a quote, you know, which uh, sums up the whole of the Buddha's teaching in a few lines. And it's also posted in the foyer if you'd want to write it down, maybe. Whosoever is emancipated from the world does so by removing the five hindrances, firmly establishing the mind in the five foundations of mindfulness and cultivating the seven factors of awakening or seven factors of enlightenment. And we have been speaking about the uh, five hindrances and also about the seven factors of enlightenment. And today I just want to speak a little bit about what it means in firmly establishing the mind in the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, the four foundations of mindfulness, they are a template which makes experience accessible for us. You know, it's, it's just a way, a map, how we can look at experience. And then if we use that map of the four foundations, you know, we can cut it up in parts. And through that, it's easier to be investigated in that way. So the four foundations of mindfulness, you know, they distinguish... Uh, four different uh, areas of our experience, we can look into those and then we're going to see, of course, what we see first is impermanence. And then we also see the unsatisfactoriness and not-self. So the first foundation of mindfulness is body, or kaya in Pali. And we can access that foundation if we just... um, Take the breathing, for example, as an object for meditation that leads us straight into the body. And the breathing itself is also like part of the bodily process. It happens all by itself. And as you have seen, you know, it's impermanent. It's constantly arising and ceasing and you don't have to do it. It's this nature is taking over here. And if you try to interfere, you just kind of start coughing and and it, it just doesn't really work. You have to just let it be what it is. And you can, you know, take it as a focus for meditation. And then that in itself teaches us about impermanence. Just because we're experiencing it. And then, you know, it, it, um, we start to uh, become familiar with it not through thinking about it, but through being in direct contact. This is a different way of uh, learning. And meditation is all about that, you know, giving us an opportunity to learn by experience. And that's also what I said yesterday, I think, about what wisdom is all about in the Buddha's teaching. It's, it's an action rather than a possession, you know, stored up somewhere in the brain or in the bookshelves. So, and then, you know, when we are attending to the process of breathing, the body breathing completely and fully, then this wisdom, panya, is the result of it. And then, you know, this understanding of the impermanence of all things, we can then carry in all other experiences in our life. 
And the second foundation of mindfulness is the um, foundation of feelings of Vedana in Pali. And, you know, when we focus on that, what we can notice is, you know, that there are pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. And then furthermore, the Buddha also broke it up into so-called worldly and unworldly, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings. For example, a worldly pleasant feeling would be eating your favorite ice cream, for example. And an unworldly pleasant feeling would be a blissful um, state of meditation, for example. Or like the pity which arises after you had an insight, for example. And what we can see with all of those feelings, worldly or unworldly, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, what they all have in common is impermanence, unstability, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Again, the same thing, the same characteristics. And then the next foundation of mindfulness is uh, the foundation of mind or citta. For example, my name is Santa Chitta, which means a peaceful mind or a serene mind. And it's the same word, Chitta. And what we can observe, you know, when we observe the mind, we can notice, you know, certain mind states or moods of the mind. There might be desire. Is there desire in the mind or is there no desire in the mind? Is there aversion in the mind or is there no aversion in the mind? Is there, you know, deluded distraction going on in the mind or is there no deluded distraction going on in the mind? That's the three, you know, uh, overarching colorings of the mind which can be there. And we can feel it, you know, if there's aversion, the mind is all kind of contracted. And you can have that as a visceral experience in the body also. And probably, you know, if the mind is desiring an object, you just feel everything is just going out and wanting to pull this in. And if there's distraction, the mind can't settle for anything. It's constantly kind of churning and not settling with anything. And we can know, you know, if those states are present and we can also know if they are not present. And what they all share in common again is the three characteristics. They are all impermanent. They are all, non- they are not all unsatisfactory or unstable. And they are all not self. We can't own them and pin them down and, and just possess them, control them. So that's the third foundation of mindfulness. And then the fourth and last foundation of mindfulness is, is the foundation of phenomena, or also in Pali it's called foundation of dhammas. Dhammas with a small d, because dhamma with a small d means phenomena, and with a capital D it means uh, the Dhamma is the teaching of the Buddha. So not to confuse those two. So foundation of phenomena. And then, you know, we have given you some instructions on how we can investigate those. For example, you know, the hindrances, the five hindrances are five different Dhammas we can observe in the mind. 
that's how the mind states, you know, the aversion, the desire or the delusion, how it translates into mind states. First, it is just like a mood of the mind. And then if we attach to that mood, it becomes, you know, whole clusters of thoughts which are colored by that mood. For example, if there's a mood of aversion, then it's going to translate into the hindrance of ill will, for example. If there's a mood of desire, it will translate into the hindrance of of uh, sensual desire. And then there's all of the thoughts. So, and then another way how, if there is a skillful mind state, if there's no desire, if there's no aversion, if there's no delusion in the mind, then the seven factors of enlightenment would be present to a certain amount of strength. And we can know that too. Are they present or are they not present? That's a, as a way how we can investigate phenomena in the mind. And what they all share in common again is the three characteristics. They're all impermanent, they're all unstable and unreliable, and they are all not self. They can't be possessed. So that's a way how we can, you know, see the three characteristics, you know, permeating all of our life, our thoughts, our bodies, our everything, our cars, our children, our anything you mention it, anything you can experience with the six sense organs, it all is governed by those three characteristics. And once that is really deeply seen for what it is, then you can't help but studying you know, to have disenchantment set in. But not it's not a negative kind of disenchantment. It's like, you know, you wake up from a spell, basically. You wake up from the spell that if you control phenomena, you're going to be happy. It's that kind of a waking up. So it's a very fortunate waking up. And the whole teaching is geared towards wake us up in that way, you know then we can still, of course, you know, enjoy the beauty of the world. Just hear and look out of the window. It's all governed by the three characteristics, but it's still beautiful. And we can enjoy it as long as it lasts. You know? And then when it changes, because we deeply know that everything is changing, we won't be devastated by it. But we... We open to it, trusting, you know, that unpleasant sensation will change in the same way as pleasant sensation to change. So there's no reason to control it because it can't be done. And also, you know, we would always only recreate the past because we are so strongly conditioned by our past experience. The only way how we can come, you know, into a new way of uh, experiencing life is letting go. Just, you know, get out of the way and let the mystery which we call life just reveal itself because it's doing it since billions of years and it has been doing quite okay without us kind of interfering and just you know learning to trust that um, 
intelligence which is much greater than the conceptual mind. And just seeing, you know, this is going on, life on earth is going on since, you know, almost five billion years. And in the beginning there was just, uh, you know, just a soup, basically a cosmic soup. And now we are sitting here, you know, in spirit rock and having a retreat. So obviously, you know, there is a direction in all of this. And we can learn to align ourselves with it rather than struggling against it. And that's, you know, the, what the Buddha pointed out as a path out of suffering. If we don't go against the way things are, but if we align ourselves with it. And, you know, if we start to understand that all of this, you know, what we are experiencing in this human birth is all about... Um, is a support for the transformation of consciousness. And it's not just, you know, to be born and, you know, run around after pleasant things and then die. There's a much bigger purpose to all of this. And, you know, contemplating experience according through those three characteristics is you know is kind of gearing us up for connecting with this much bigger purpose in an increasing full way you know through because if you really see those characteristics in action you can't help but being disenchanted you can never go back if you've seen it even to a small extent you can't go back to how it was before you know when you didn't notice that and and that's that's all basically, you know, and then just basically, you know, gearing the mind towards looking at that, it doesn't want to look. That's the meditation practice. And there's lots of skillful means and, you know, different lists according to which we can investigate experience. And then there's, you know, different schools of Buddhism and according to in which culture the school, you know, has grown up, it has different... Uh, paraphernalia and you know equipment and chants and outfits and all of that you know but in the end of the day it's all the same you know it's all going towards you know inspiring the mind to look at that it which doesn't want to look and then you just you know pick what is best suited for your character and and use you know all of the um, supports for you know, for bending the mind towards reality rather than just keep on going in past patterns, you know, projecting them onto the present because it feels kind of safe. So, you know, and, and, and according to the scriptures, the, the um, progression of insight is... I just want to mention the words to you so you can just, you know, hear it. Even if the language is, you know, is maybe a little bit kind of dry. But, you know, just understand that this teaching was created a long time ago. And, uh, 
you know, just allow those words into the heart, you know, and, and see how they, how, how they resonate. So, you know, when we see impermanence really clearly, then disenchantment is the result of that. We don't have to make it happen. It's just, you know, anybody who is not a fool would have that result. And then, you know, if we, if we have a certain amount of disenchantment, then we, we suddenly, you know, we see the unsatisfactoriness of all phenomena very clearly or increasingly clearly. And the instability of all phenomena, that we can't really, you know, rest into the phenomena because we don't know when they're going to change. And as I said before, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy them. We can enjoy them, but if we attach to them, we're going to suffer. So and then we, if we see that clearly, you know, that unsatisfactoriness, then uh, dispassion is the result of that. Dispassion. So, you know, we are less and less kind of going crazy about things we have been going crazy in the past because we just see very clearly it's just not good for us, you know. It is a, it's just leaks so much energy to run after things which are, uh, you know, which are inherently unstable. So once that is really clearly seen, you know, this passion sets in, and then, you know, if, if that is gone through in a very deep level, the next stage of insight is called cessation. So then, you know, then there's a complete cessation of any more, you know, wanting sense gratification. And, you know, that would be a very high state of insight, which, you know, none of us here in that room has yet <laughs> really fully realized. But we can realize it in little things, you know. If you look back when you were a child, for example, you were crazy about certain toys, and now it doesn't bother you. So, you know, you have grown out of that obsession. You can grow out of other obsessions too, you know. Now we have different toys. Now we have iPods and cars and things like that. And before we had, I don't know, a little castle or a little doll. And so it's a very natural process. And then, you know, if cessation, if there's full cessation or at least, you know, like dispassion, that means also, you know, that we have, we, we see not, not self. Because this, this, you know, this um, obsession with I and mine making, you know, wanting to make things mine and possess them and not wanting that anybody else have them and wanting to control them, that also, you know, starts to become less and less. And it doesn't mean, you know, that we don't have any boundaries. What is my... Uh, yeah, my, my objects which I need in order to, to lead my life. It doesn't mean you know, that everybody can uh, walk all over you, but it's, it's a way of um, you know, seeing things in a way where we are rather, we are not the owners of things, but we are more like stewards of, of the things which we have for the time being. And you know, in a very big way, we have to learn that about planet Earth, you know, where we treat the planet, you know, because of those 
delusions which are so deeply embedded, you know, in in so many billions of people on this planet, we treat the planet in a way which is is completely out of sync. And therefore, you know, we are destroying our environment and destroy ourselves and many other species. So, you know, that illness of ignorance and greed and aversion is is very, very pervasive and it's very self-defeating, really. And now you know, we're getting the reflection back in, in a very big way as we have never gotten it before. Before it was always more like a personal suffering, but now it's becoming you know, a, a huge global suffering because we have to learn to, to understand you know, that we are all one big being. So, you know, the, the practice now, it's even, it's, it's, it has always been of crucial importance, but now it's just, you know, more important than it ever was. So, you know, seeing those three characteristics in the four foundations of mindfulness is like, you know, when you want to climb a mountain, you, you have those different things to hold on to, to climb up. And you can use, you know, this template of the four foundations in combination with the three characteristics. It's like, you know, you can use that to climb up, which means, you know, you climb onto the top of the mountain and then you have a very big view. You can see how everything is interconnected and how it works. And then you align yourself with that rather than going against it. And... And it's not it's not complicated, and it's pretty you know it can be pretty clearly laid out in that way like I just spoke about. But then you know to really keep the mind looking at it, keep it the mind interested, not distracted within the five hindrances. That's you know where we have to put in energy because the mind doesn't want to see those things. Or maybe, you know, when we have a very st- powerful loss or very strong suffering, then we are ready to do it. But if everything is kind of all right, you know, it's much more difficult to look. So, I hope, you know, you can uh, can use that over the, over the day today. And then in the afternoon, I'm going to, maybe give another reflection along those lines and then we can sit now till another I'm not quite clear when is the bell? Do you know? At 9.30? 9.45 9.45 Another half an hour Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.